Holy Spirit, I don't know about anybody out there, but this morning I am acutely aware that I need you and your spirit. I am desperately clinging on to you this morning because I don't have what it takes. And man, I, if there's anybody, anybody out there who showed up this morning and, and you could honestly say, God, I, I haven't felt your presence. I haven't been aware of your presence. I am in massive doubt about your love and about your ways. If that's you, you sense a distance from God. You sense disconnected from God. You sense and are spiritually dry. Will you just pray with me? Pray with me the very words that we just sang about. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Can I share with the church what you said? Uh, Carlton said that there are some folks here this morning that are uh, particularly in need of prayer. Um, So maybe some sort of an altar call or just an invitation at the end prayer. Um, So let me uh, get this out of the way and then then we'll kind of jump in. Um, as Pastor Caitlin mentioned, we are guys uh, uh, in the thick of, oh, I hate the words capital campaign. Somebody else needs to come up with a different word. 
We just want to call it Imagine. That's what we're calling it, Imagine. It's this entire journey right now to uh, not just raise funds for renovations and other things for our facility, but really uh, this journey that we've been on. And, and, and I want to make this as clear as possible. Because I had one of our folks who's involved as a leader in this campaign who said, you know, Pastor Peter, I'm really not interested in uh, getting our church to give money so we could make repairs and buildings. And then I said, I am a thousand percent with you. I said, if I could say it this way, the whole goal of what we're trying to do is this. The whole goal of what we're trying to do is somehow to get all of us who are part of this church family to recognize that the call of our lives is to engage in interdependent way the mission of our church and not just to come and sit. Recognize you are a vital part of this body and that we have a role to play. And really ask this question of what does it mean for all of us to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ as related to our time, our talents, our gifts, and our resources. That's the whole thing. And I said it this way to this guy, and I'll say it this way this to you guys. To me, it's an utter fail if we raise the money that we need to to pay for stuff, but we walk away from this capital campaign without any changes in our hearts to how we perceive our time, our talents, and our money. It's a fail if we raise the money to do this thing, but we walk away from this experience without any changes to his lordship when it comes to all of our lives. It is. And I, as a pastor, need to own that and go, and so this entire thing is, starting with me, what does it mean for us to submit ourselves under his lordship to who we are and all that we have and then allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us in the ways that he's going to speak to us about how we engage and be involved. It's a, listen, and I hate to say, I don't think it's going to be that hard to raise money. You know what it is harder? Is to get your hearts and your souls and my hearts and my souls to align ourselves with his kingdom agenda and to live under his lordship. That's harder. So this rally and all the things that we're doing, it's us coming, getting some information and learning, and I want and need you to participate when you've been contacted by our team leaders and cabinet to engage their team. But man, I tell you, I, that's why I'm feeling real desperate this morning about what does it mean for us as a church body to submit ourselves and surrender our hearts and our lives under his lordship and allow him to speak to us about how we're to be involved and engaged. So I hope that you will make it a priority to not just attend their, uh, the rally this uh, Wednesday, which I'm hoping everybody will come to, but also be a part and engage the process when you're invited to be a part of the team. You, you hear me, church? Okay. Uh, I don't know. I'm hypersensitive to things, but I'm really, I'm really just kind of, I, I'm really feeling this sense of heaviness this morning. What's that? I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. And, and you might be sitting there going, hey, you just, you're tired maybe. I am <laughs> tired. And I also said to Caitlin, I said, you know, our church experience is normally the Sunday after Easter, what I call Easter hangover or Easter, I don't know what you want to call it, you know, for those of us that need a better metaphor. But it's, 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 it's really just kind of, it's uncanny 
Because our church loves Good Friday, Easter, and we put so much energy and passion, you know. But Sunday after Easter always tends to be, you know, I don't know, I don't know. And, and I think on top of that, though, there is this added element. I don't know quite what it is. And maybe it was confirmation from Carlton, because we didn't talk at all before service. He just came up to me and he said, please make sure they invite some folks to pray, because people need prayer this morning. Um, so what we're doing this morning, church, is this. We're actually doing two things. What we're doing this morning is we are actually concluding a sermon series that we've been on for weeks, Emotional Healthy Spirituality, and then actually pivoting and then starting another that we'll pick up next Sunday. Okay, so did you hear that? So we're, we're finished. It doesn't mean I'm going to preach for two hours. Don't worry, okay? We're, we're finishing and then we're pivoting, okay? All right, so... Wasn't that funny? <laughs> Emotional spirituality. And I'm sorry if this is your first Sunday because you're going to feel like you're walking into a, sur- a, a movie at like the tail end and you're going to go, what, what happened? What are we talking about? So we're going to try our best to kind of get you to where we've been at so that you're caught up. Emotional, let me put up a definition that we've been working with, okay? Emotionally healthy spirituality. Emotional health, we've been saying, which is defined as ability to be self-aware and to love well. And spiritual maturity are inseparable. And for some of us that grew up in church that never talked about this, it's been actually eye-opening. To talk about what does it mean to be self-aware? What does it mean to... Feel deep emotions, God-given emotions, and how does that relate to spiritual growth and spiritual maturity? And we've been saying that it's impossible to become spiritually mature while remaining emotionally mature. And this next uh, picture, the iceberg, is, 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 is something that we've been looking at because basically for the last seven, eight weeks, I've been asking the question of, we all know about the tip of the iceberg, the 10% of your life that everybody sees, but what's going on underneath? What's going on underneath? The thing that some of us, we've been on this journey. By the way, I had coffee with a guy yesterday, and I said to him, I said, the thing that God has been doing in your life for the last seven, eight weeks, you are at a point right now where you're teetering. He said, what do you mean? And I said, God has brought all this to the surface now in the last seven, eight weeks about your anger, resentment, bitterness, lack of forgiveness, addictions, living in denial, And I said, God has brought it to the surface, and you have a choice. You could either courageously take the step of doing something about it, or you could just bury it again and go, good thing we're not talking about that in church anymore. And I said, you're teetering. And this whole sermon series, we've been saying, do you have enough courage now to actually begin take steps to address this? This whole process hasn't been just for navel-gazing, going, how are my feelings? What am I feeling? Or self-introspection for the sake of self-introspection. The whole point of why we've been doing this is because here's what the Bible says about spiritual maturity and growth. Ephesians 5. And we've come to this again and again. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Church, we've been saying for eight weeks, the ultimate aim of the Christian life is to become more like Jesus. And the characteristic attributes that characterizes someone who is more like Jesus is what? Is Love. It's love. Love 
characterizes first and more, foremost Christ-likeness. The main evidence that God is at work in our lives is not giftedness, it's Christ-likeness. And having been a pastor for 20-some years, can I just tell you that when churches are enamored with giftedness over character, that church is in trouble. Can I tell you this? In businesses and organizations, when people are enamored with giftedness and talent and they bypass character, that organization is in trouble. But we live in a culture that's enamored by giftedness and talent and not character. And in the church, we've been saying we have to do better because what matters is character. God is more concerned about who you're becoming and not what you can do. So I've been asking, how are we doing? How are you doing? Are we becoming more like Christ by becoming more loving? Or another way to ask a question, would you rather win an argument and be right? Or Roger, love someone into the kingdom? Very few people have been argued into the kingdom. Many people have been loved into the kingdom. How are you doing? How am I doing? Do we love well Do we love well? Husbands, do you love well? Wives, do you love well? Pastors, do you love well? Friends, do you love well? That's what we're talking about. And how do you love well? Well, my job today, like I said, is to finish a sermon series and introduce another. The good news is they're actually connected. So emotional health and emotional health and spirituality has been talking about various ways in which we're self-aware, various ways in which we're asking deep questions, being rigorously honest, dealing with issues that lie underneath us. But the other side of emotionally healthy spirituality, which we didn't spend a whole time on, is what Peter Scazzaro calls contemplative spirituality. It's the role of contemplative spirituality, nurturing a vibrant, contemplative life, which integrates disciplines like prayer, solitude, silence, Sabbath-keeping, and what we're going to talk about today, the daily office. Can I just say this? It seems to me that nurturing a contemplative, like right now, right now, even me talking about this is kind of ironic, because all of you are, not all, many of us are like, Distracted, 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 distracted. Nurturing a contemplative life in our culture right now, in our society. Let me say that again. A contemplative life right now in our culture and our society, which includes slowing down our frenetic pace of life. Which includes being alone with God in prayer and word. Which includes being silent enough to hear and listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. Those things are not only foreign to the culture, it's foreign to the church. We're not just busy. We suffer from what I call hurry sickness. We multitask. We're exhausted. You're burnt out. You can't even sit still for an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. We're always on the way to something or someplace else. We live our lives on the run, squeezing God in where we can. And the effects of that is we have an entire generation of people with tons of head knowledge, but none of the head knowledge has penetrated your hearts. We sing about the love of God 
But experientially, when we go through hard times, we panic. And the worst of all is that because of this lack of a contemplative life, we wind up living off of other people's spiritual lives. We live off of other people's spiritual life if the only time you get fed is on Sunday mornings. We live off of other people's spiritual life if the only thing that feeds you is once a week in your small group. Nobody, let me say this very clearly, nobody, ultimately nobody can do this for you. At some point, we have to own our spiritual lives, church. Nobody can do this for you. And this is not to minimize the role of community. We talk a lot about that. But we cannot continue to live off of other people's spiritual lives and squeeze God on the run. Are you hearing me? And if this transition doesn't take place, you know what I hear a lot? I hear a lot of people go, you know, this church doesn't feed me anymore, so I'm going to go somewhere else. And what you consider being fed is simply a new environment. And I'll get you there for a little bit, but you've right back into the hole. I don't feel fed anymore. And one of the most critical practices to nurturing a contemplative life is this thing called a daily office. Which literally means, by the way, the work of God. And it reminds us that our first work in life, regardless of our vocation, our jobs, is this simply, is to seek God and to be with him. The first and foremost work in your life and my life, church family, is to seek God and to be with him. That is the ultimate highest calling on us. The challenge for us, and I'm going to get into more of this, is that many of us grew up with what's called quiet times or devotions. Anybody? Anybody? Quiet times or devotions? Inner varsity folks? In mission. Here's the thing about quiet times and why they didn't work for me for years. The thing about quiet times is I would spend the first 10, 15 minutes of the day, Bible reading, so on and so forth. But it literally took one hour, sometimes 30 minutes, for me to completely forget about God and be completely enwrapped in the activity that I was in. And the question needs to be asked. What's the point of spending your first 15 minutes with God if for the rest of the 23 hours and 45 minutes of your day, you don't give God a second thought? Are you hearing me? And the other thing about quiet times, and this is kind of embarrassing for me, I approach that from the perspective of I'm going to be filled and fed, and that'll kind of carry me for the rest of the day. So I approach it from perspective. I need a word. I need an insight. I need something. The whole point of being with God is to be with God and not get something from it. The whole point of being with God is to be with God and not get something from him. You guys, the whole point of nurturing a contemplative life is so that all day, every day, 
we become so aware of his presence and his voice that joy, contentment, and confidence in his unconditional love for us carries us for the rest of that day. The whole point Our ultimate call in life. And I feel like I'm speaking a foreign language when I say this to this audience. American context. The whole point of our spiritual life, listen to this. This is the best way to explain. Is that all day, every day, you and I are so aware of God's presence. And so in tune with his voice. That even when I am active, even when I am engaged in something, joy, contentment, and confidence of his unconditional love is what characterizes my state of being. Can I ask you something? Does that describe you? Does that describe me? What if I told you that this is the normal Christian life that God intended for us? That we live our lives in awareness of his presence, attentive to his voice, in tune with his leading, so that joy, contentment, and confidence in his unconditional love characterizes our everyday life. The psalmist says, I have set the Lord always before me. And Paul says, we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. But this thing of setting the Lord before me and taking captive every thought doesn't happen automatically, does it? No, that's why set, take captive are active verbs, meaning you and I have a role to play. Determining where our soul rests. And that's where the daily office comes in. What is a daily office? It literally helps us restructure and reorient our lives so that not just once, but two, three times a day, we pause. We literally stop and pause. And it could be for two minutes, 20 minutes, 45 minutes. The length of the time doesn't matter. The important thing is that throughout the day, we pause so that we could be attentive. We pause so that we could be aware. We pause so that regardless of the activity that we're engaged in, we become ourselves available, make ourselves available to listen to his voice. Let me just ask you something. How many of us are actually doing this right now? Raise your hands. Hi. Do you see how foreign this is to us? You guys, do you see how foreign this is to us? There's not single one of us, I don't think, in here that would say, I would love, Peter, to get up in the morning and go to bed at night saying to myself, I live today aware of his presence, regardless of what I was doing. I live today attentive to his voice. I live today following his leading every step of the way. Because I paused, I paused, I paused two minutes, ten minutes, fifteen minutes, and listened to his voice and became aware of his presence. And that is what the daily office is. And that is something that is absolutely and utterly foreign to many of us. And I'll get to what the consequences of that are. But real quick, this 
principle is found in scripture, even though it was actually made sort of famous by the Desert Fathers. Let me give you a couple of scripture principles. Psalm 119, 164. I will praise you. This is David. Seven times a day because all your rage. Can I just say something? Uh, how many of us are sitting here going, dude, that's just impossible. You see where we're at? We go, no. And then we see where we're at spiritually. I will praise you seven times a day because all your regular are just day Daniel, Daniel. Daniel chapter 6 verse 10. Now when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to God and underlined this, underlined this, underlined this. We'll come back to it. Just as he had done before. And of course, the example, we can look at number that I want to get to is the example of Jesus. Mark chapter 1 verse 29. We're going to look at kind of the practices that he engaged in and the types of activities that he engaged in. By the way, Dallas Willer, one of my favorite authors, said this. Uh, if we believe Jesus, we also need to believe that he knew how to live, yes? What types of engage, activities did he engage in? What did he do? How did he structure his day? And what does it mean to follow him in that? Mark chapter 1, verse 29. We're going to look at two brief accounts in the Gospels and draw some principles. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. By the way, I'm sorry, confession. I, uh, I, I did not want to preach this sermon. I pushed it off to the very end. Do you know why? Because I hate preaching sermons that I don't do. And with that, let's look at the passage. Okay, Mark chapter 1, verse 29. You have no idea how much I struggled this week. You have no idea. You have no idea. I did not want to preach this sermon. I did not want to preach this sermon. Mark chapter 1 verse 29. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with the fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. Verse 32, that evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. How would you like to spend your evening like that? You know what I like to do when I get home? Nothing. That's the point. I don't even like to have church people over. When I get home, I'm like, I lock myself in, nothing. Here's Jesus after sunset, okay? He spends an evening, sick and demon possessed. Look at what happens, verse 33. The whole town gathered at the door. The whole town. Houses back then had one or two rooms. In a typical town would be 2,000 people. Use your imagination. The whole town, it says, gathered at the door. Why? Because Jesus was widely gaining a reputation as a miracle healer. And here's the thing. Back then, if you were sick or had an ailment, you were basically done. Why? Because there were no cure, no ailments. And so when you heard that there was a miracle worker who could heal you, that was your last chance in life. And people were like, I'm not about to miss that. Verse 34. 
And Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. It's another sermon for another time. Verse 35. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. What had Jesus been doing all night? Working. I would have slept in. And I would have justified it too. Father, you understand, right? Been a long night. But Jesus, and here's the key, as was his daily habit. As was his daily habit. Daniel chapter 3. Just as he had done before. As was his daily habit. Gets up and carves out space and time to be alone with the Father. Studies have shown that habits will eat willpower for breakfast. 40% of what you and I do, good and terrible, are a result of habits. This is why I am preaching a sermon this morning and many of you will walk down going, I need to do that better. And three days from now, you'll fall right back to your what? Habits. You can't live this life. I'm going so convicted. I'm going to go, it doesn't work. Why? Because our willpower ultimately always gives in to the habits and rhythms you've established every single day. So right now, listen, if you do not have the habit of even setting aside one time a day to be attentive and listen to the voice of the Lord, my guess is it's been weeks and months and years. And your life right now is sporadic here, sporadic there, sporadic here, sporadic there. If rhythms and habits are not established, it doesn't matter how convicted you get, you will not get out of that rut. What do your rhythms and habits of being with Jesus look like today? Be honest. What do your rhythms and habits of being alone with Jesus look like right now? Is it sporadic? Hit or miss? When I get convicted? When I have time? (laughs) Biggest fallacy in the world. When I have time. Good Lord. Because we never do it. (sighs) Luke chapter 5 verse 15. Check this out. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. In other words, there's more to do than ever. Activists, pay attention. There's more to do than ever. There's more needs to be met than ever. There's a laundry list to do. His to-do list getting longer. More people to heal. More people to feed. More people to... And what do we find? Verse 16. But. Everybody say but. But. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. Two things as a result of the daily habits of Jesus. Then I'm going to pivot to the sermon series for next month, this month, and then we're done. Two things that happened to Jesus as a result of him 
practicing this discipline. One, Jesus was busy but never hurried. Jesus was busy but never, you never, you never get a sense in the gospels of Jesus going, man, I got so much to do. You never read the Gospels, Jesus frenetic going, how am I getting all this done? You never get Jesus saying, I am so busy. Why? Here's the difference between busyness and hurry. You ready? Oh, man. This, was, this is the reason why I tell you I didn't want to preach this morning. Because your pastor is not busy. I'm hurried. Here's the difference. Busy is a full schedule. Hurried. Is preoccupied. Hurried is me giving bath to my kids and not thinking about them, but it's thinking about work. Next, busy is many activities. Hurry is unable to be fully present. How many of us are unable to be fully present to our loved ones, our family, friends? Anybody? How many of you have ever been across somebody who you knew were not fully present with you? How does that feel? Next, busy. Is an outward condition of the calendar. Hurried is an inner soul, condition of the soul. An outward condition of the calendar. My calendar is full, but hurried is an inner, harried, frenetic, anxious condition of the soul. Next, busy is physically demanding. Hurried is when you're spiritually trained. There are some times when I am physically working and doing stuff and I feel full. And then there are other times when I'm doing very little, but I feel utterly drained. And lastly, busy. Reminds me I need God. Hurry causes me to be unavailable to God. Dallas Willard, my favorite, all of my favorite said this. If you want to grow spiritually, He said, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. You cannot. I cannot grow spiritually if I am hurried. It doesn't matter if I'm a pastor. It doesn't matter how many sermons. It doesn't matter how many books. It doesn't matter if you, life, and your soul is hurried. You cannot grow spiritually. And for some of us, we haven't grown spiritually in years. Why? We are. the consequences of a hurried life. None of this is like, wow, Peter, that's brilliant. But I want to make us feel really, really uncomfortable so that we could call out to Jesus for help. 
One, hurried life destroys intimacy with God. This isn't, this isn't like, wow, that's a wonderful insight, Peter. I know it isn't. But you and I know that a hurried life destroys intimacy with God. Why? Because intimacy with God requires stillness. Be still and know that I am God. You cannot develop intimacy on the run. Intimacy requires stillness, attentiveness, silence. And that doesn't just apply to our relationship with God. It applies to any relationships. One of the saddest things for me is when I go out to eat with my wife and I see two people who've been married and they're just blank, silent stares. And no, it's not the blank, silent stare where there's so much trust and intimacy that you don't need to talk. We're just... No, it's the blank, silent stare because they've drifted apart. You don't drift towards intimacy. You drift apart. You don't drift towards intimacy. People don't drift towards it. People drift apart. Maybe it was the couple and it was busyness of raising kids. Maybe it was, I got to start this career and I got to, maybe it's because two people took each other for granted. Before we know it, it was just drifted apart. And truth be told, that describes your relationship with God today. That was a major sin. It's just, and by the way, uh, if you're sitting right now and you're married, and what I just described describes your marriage, don't shrug this off. Don't go, yeah, you know. No, don't do that. You've known in your heart that something isn't right for months and years. Don't, don't do the whole, I'm living denial, mask it with me. No, 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 no. No, no. Do something about it. See, intimacy with anybody requires stillness. Attentiveness. Listening. And that requires effort that requires engagement that requires i pay attention like i said i feel silly saying this because i'm like this is not any brilliant insight and yet how many of us are sitting here this morning going i can't remember the last time i did that with god uh, can I just show you quickly what happened as a result of Jesus? Um, and we'll come back to this a little. Uh, as a result of Jesus going away to be alone with the Father. Look at John chapter 5 verse 17. Jesus replied, my Father is always working and so am I. The Son can do nothing by himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. You see why Jesus never seemed hurried or anxious and overworked and he accomplished more in three years than we will do in our lifetime. <laughs> Jesus approached life was, God, what are you doing? Where are you at work? And whom are you at work? And I'm going to just join you in on that. Our approach to life, I'm going to set my agenda. I'm going to set my own pace. I need you to bless it. 
or for some of us, this ain't, plan- this ain't going out like I planned. Hell! Can I ask you something? Where do you think you and I would be if we actually lived this principle of Jesus where we said, you're at work, God, already. I just need to find out where, what, and how and invest my time, resources, and energies in that. You see why Jesus was able to go, no, no, not for me right now. That, absolutely. See, this is so foreign to so many of us right now. It's like I'm speaking a Espanol. Or not Espanol. <laughs> it's, that was dumb of me because I don't speak Spanish. That's why I said so many of you speak Spanish. I could have some other foreign language. This right now seems like a foreign language. Like, what is this guy talking about? Like that life, that Christian life, what in the world? Secondly, a hurried life feeds approval addiction. Henry Nowen. Oh, man. I am busy because I'm vain. I want to appear important, significant. What better way than to be busy? The incredible hours, the crowded schedule, and the heavy demands of my time are proof to myself and to all who will notice that I'm important. If I go into a doctor's office and find that there's no one waiting, and I see through a half-open door that the doctor is reading a book, I wonder if he's any good. Such experiences affect me. I live in a society in which crowded schedules and harassed conditions are evidence of importance. So I develop a crowded schedule and harassed conditions. When others notice, they acknowledge my significance and my vanity is fed. Why are you busy? Why am I busy? How do you feel when someone goes, man, you're so busy, man. I can't get together with you. I know. How do you feel when somebody goes, Pastor Peter, I've had to wait like two months to get an appointment with you. Total confession, it feeds my vanity and I hate it. Someone said that the real work of prayer is being silent enough to hear the voice of the one who says good things about me. Let me say that again. The whole work of prayer is to be silent enough to hear the voice of the one who says good things about me. And we will not have our insatiable need for approval controlled until you know who you are, whose you are, and what you already have in Christ. Third, a hurried life enables us to live in denial. I'll tell you the most honest, real conversation I had with somebody during the sermon series. I was talking with this guy, incredibly successful doctor. And as we were eating wasabi and over, you know, dinner, and it was really yummy and delicious. And I asked him, I said, what is this doing to you? And I'll never forget this conversation ever. He looked down, and then he looked up, and he said to me, he said, Pastor Peter, do you know why I'm so busy? Do you know why my schedule is so full? He said, because busyness keeps me from fully admitting how painfully lonely I am. And then he went on. And how angry I am still at my father. And how terrified I am of failure. Then he went back to his bowl of noodles. Did you hear what he said? I am busy. So I don't have to think about the fact that I am painfully lonely. I am busy 
Because of the fact that I have deep anger issues towards my father, I have yet to resolve. I am busy because even though I've got three degrees and a PhD, I am still terrified of failure. And as long as I keep going, I don't have to think about my past, my family, or truth about me. A hurried life, I got to keep going, decreases your capacity to love well. We live in a culture that's love-starved. People are so hungry for deep, meaningful connections with others. We have multi-billion dollar industries centered around helping people find the one. And yet, we live in the loneliest, most relationally hungry culture ever. Now, the simple ways to look at it go, well, we're just busy. We don't have time. No, 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 no. 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is Patient. Love and hurry can't coexist. Man. Love is patient. Which means that hurry and love can't exist. I think about failed marriages in our culture and how much of that is the product of an impatient culture. Love is patient. Love isn't easily angered. Love doesn't rush to judgment. Love is patient. You and I cannot love well if we live a hurried life. Love and hurry can't coexist. I have two more and then we move on. A hurry life increases the power of temptation. Why did Jesus wait until he was 30 to begin his public ministry? How many of you are under the age of 30? Raise your hand. More honestly. How many of you guys feel like you're behind in your future plans of where you wanted to be? Raise your hands. Yeah, all the enough. Do you ever think about this? I wonder why Jesus waited. Because think about this. What if Jesus started preaching in his 20s? What if he did the will, you know, turning the water into wine at Cana when he was like 24, like some of his? Do you think maybe his following would have been bigger? Do you think his... Do you think that 30 years of anonymity were wasted years? Those 30 years of anonymity for Jesus, I believe, was so that he could learn one essential lesson from his father. You know what it is? It's the virtue of patience. Do you know why I say that? When he is in the desert wilderness being tempted by the evil one, do you know what the essence of the temptation was? You could have the kingdom now. Bypass the cross. Bypass the thorns. Bypass suffering. And Jesus says what? Can you think about this? How many of our sins is a result of an instant gratification culture? What do you think pornography is? Why is pornography rampant out there and many of us struggling here? What is pornography? Essence of it? It's I want pleasure now. You don't think a hurried life contributes to that? What about some of us in our careers going, I'm going to sacrifice. Forget integrity. Out the window. I'll move up the... Co- what is that? I need it now. 
How many of your sins and my sins are a result of a worried soul? Huh? And the temptations were vulnerable too. When we choose our way, our time, our choosing over God's way, God's time, God's choosing, the result is not a life of wholeness and flourishing. It's a life of bondage and addiction. One more and then a hurry life. Clouds your passion and purpose. What is your purpose in life? In a hurried culture, your purpose, my purpose, ultimately defined by productivity, efficiency, meaning your purpose is what you do. Jesus says, that's the last of my concerns. Your purpose, God-given purpose, ultimately is about who you become. Church, I feel like I want to just come and go shake every one of us. Is your soul hurried? Is my soul hurried? Not just busy. Are we hurried? Second thing, I'm almost done. Second thing happened to Jesus as a result of being alone with the Father. He said, Good boundaries. <laughs> Who said that? Me. <laughs> I, I, I just saw this. I'm like, That is so not spiritual. Like, whoa, like that's an incredible insight. No, Jesus said, Good boundaries. What do I mean? You know what Jesus understood that many of us don't? The spiritual value. Of saying no. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Read the Gospels and look at the number of times Jesus does this. Despite enormous unmet needs everywhere. Despite the clamoring for his attention. Jesus constantly going, no, 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 not now. No, no, no. Hungry people, nope. Dying people, no. People to save, nope. Do you know what the biggest misconception is for some of us? We think that the world would be better if we said yes more. And I'm here to tell you the world would be better if we said no more. Why? Because saying no more allows us to say yes more to the things that matter. Saying no is a spiritual discipline. Do you know why? Because it enables us to say yes to the things that really matter. You and I only have limited resources. You are not God. I am not God. We don't have unlimited resources. And the limited resources we have, God says, I've entrusted to you, but you will not steward that well if you do not know how to say no for a more authentic yes. And yes, I'm preaching to myself. We've talked about how rigorously honest we needed to be during this sermon series. And can we just all admit, are you still with me? That we are uncomfortable saying no because we want to be liked, because we want to be affirmed, or we want to be valued. We don't want to say no because we don't want to disappoint people. And particularly in the church, we've internalized, internalized this message. Ah! In the church, we've internalized this message that good people, nice people, say yes to everything. 
I say yes to God. They say yes when Pastor Peter comes and says, will you do that? <laughs> I, was, I was afraid that you were going to respond like that. We in the church have bought into this lie that says good people, nice people, spiritual people say yes. The Bible says the otherwise. Spiritual mature people go, I say no to that for the sake of a better yes. Oh, church family. Jesus said good boundaries. People who've embraced the gift of limits not only say no a lot, but they said healthy boundaries. People associate the word boundaries negatively. Do you know what boundary literally means? Boundary literally means protecting and preserving that which is sacred. The word sacred, from which we get the English word sacred in Latin, literally has a connotation that you're putting something aside. You're protecting something. So boundaries are things that we put around us so that we could preserve that which is sacred and not just to keep things out. Did you hear that? So I don't take church-related calls at night. Why? Because I am protecting the boundary of my time with my family because my family is sacred. I don't check my emails from Sunday night to Monday night. That's why some of you are like, why don't you respond back? That's exactly why. Sunday night to Monday night. Why? Because I am protecting the boundary of my body, my soul, my spirit for the week. Boundaries are for people who go, what God has entrusted to me, time, effort, energy, that's sacred, that's precious, that's valuable. I will protect it with all my might. That's why I'll say no, no, no. How are you doing? Do you have sacred boundaries? <sighs> what am I supposed to do then, Peter? Three very practical applications, and then I'm going to pivot and we're done. One, get really good at saying no. Let's all practice together right now. <laughs> Count of one, two, three. One, two, three. See, some of y'all are like, I still want to be liked. Get over it. Get over it. I want you to say it. I want you to say it like you're angry at me. Okay? Right here we go. No, actually, don't do that. Don't do that. Think of somebody that you're angry at and say, one, I'm going to read. One, two, three. Say no when you mean no. Don't say I'm busy. Don't say I'm busy. We say, I'm busy when we're not holding good boundaries and we allow people and circumstances to dictate the pace of our lives. Say no. Be comfortable saying with your no. If you're not sure what to say, say no. Did you hear that? If you're not sure what to say, say no. Why? Because it's always easier to say yes after you've said no than to say no after you've said yes. Say no. When I have to say no to something, and church, I don't mean, I, I don't say this to go, whoa, you think it. I get a lot of requests to do a lot of things. And I am terrible at saying no. 
And one of the only things that's kept me a mechanism is when somebody says, will you do this? And I really struggle saying no to that person with that opportunity. Here's what I have to do to myself. I say, I am choosing to say no to honor that which is sacred. I am choosing to say no. I don't say I'm busy. I say, I'm choosing to say no to honor that which is sacred. And here's what I say to them. I say, thank you for asking me right now, but I can't prioritize that. Thanks for thinking of me. Secondly, replace I have to with I choose to. How many times have you and I said, I have to do it. I have to do that. I have to meet her. I have to meet her. I have to take this call. I have to go to this thing. If, if you are accustomed to just rolling out I have to, please recognize that when you say I have to, you are making a deliberate choice to do that thing over another. You are literally deliberately prioritizing one thing over another when you say, I have to. And I started doing this a few years back. And let me just tell you, it is absolutely gut-wrenching when I find myself saying, I choose to do something and I know it's a misplaced priority. It's gut-wrenching. But that's the whole point. That's the whole point. Peter, you are deliberately choosing to do that over this. You are deliberately choosing where the boundaries are because if you don't respect your boundaries, nobody's going to respect them for you. Third, don't just ask, can I do that? Ask, should I do that? Don't just ask, can I do that? Ask, should I do that? 1 Corinthians 10.23, you say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. You say, I'm allowed to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. Don't be concerned for your own good, but for the good of others. We're so accustomed, CC, to saying, can I, can, I, can I do that? Can I do that? We think it's about competency. We think when you live without limits, when you live without limits, of course they'll can I do that? It's not even a question. Can I? Of course. If I kill myself doing it, if I wanted to do it for your validation, well, of course I'll do it. But when you say, should I do that? It's not about competency anymore. It's about motivation. Why do you want to do that, Peter? They asked you to do that conference. Why do you want to do that? Can you do it? Of course you could do it. You could preach, get up, do Should you? Why, why do you want to do that? Who are you doing it for? What's your motivation? What are you after? Here's a prayer. Here's a prayer that if we were to pray this every single morning, I wonder what would happen. Here's a prayer. If we prayed this throughout the day, two, three times, I wonder what would happen. Here's a prayer. If it became ingrained as a part of our spiritual disciplines, I wonder what would happen to us. Show me the activities and decisions and priorities and relationships that are not what you want from me today. I submit my life to your lordship and your ways is there. Show me the activities, decisions, and priorities and relationships that are not what you want from me today. I submit my life to your lordship and your ways this day. Show me the activities, decisions, priorities, and relationships that are not what you want from me today. I submit my life to your lordship and your ways this day. What would happen to Last thing. Here's the pivot. You ready? Here's the pivot. Learn to walk according to the Spirit. 
Did you catch that? This is our sermon series for next. You know why this is important? Everybody, I'm not like five minutes. Can you over here? Here's the reason why this is important. The whole point of setting aside one, two, three times a day, two minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes to stop and pause is so that we would learn how to walk according to the Spirit. When you look in the New Testament, and this is phenomenal, phenomenal, just a little blip for next month, next week, next two weeks. When you look at the New Testament, this is the way that the Christian life, normal, natural Christian life, is described. Cece, come on up. We're almost done. Check this out. But I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. Because the fruit of the Spirit is love, it's joy, it's peace, it's patience, it's kindness, it's goodness, it's faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. What does that describe? It describes an emotionally healthy, spiritually mature person. How do you get that though? Against such thing, there's no law. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. The Christian, the Christian life, the question of the Christian life is not how much you know. The question of the Christian life is not how well you follow the rules. The question in the Christian life is how well, how closely are you walking according to the Spirit? And do you see the fruit of that? Here's the thing. What does walking according to the Spirit look like? For some of us, this is review. This is something that we come every ah, two, three years. Shame on you. Shame on your pastor. Because this is just as much part of the gospel as anything else in our church. Here's what it means to walk according to the Spirit. And you see why the New Testament Christian life is so exciting. It's an adventure. Walking according to the Spirit is living my life sensitive to and dependent upon the inner promptings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in such a way that His leading and His influence dominate my entire being. Walking according to the Spirit. The normal, natural Christian life. This isn't an offshoot thing. This isn't for the charismatics and the Pentecostals. This is the normal, natural Christian life. God intended for everybody is that we walk according to the Spirit. That is, live my life sensitive to and dependent upon the inner promptings. Amazing news from the Bible. You ready? If you're a child of God, you could hear God's voice. John chapter 10, my sheep know me, and they what? They know my voice. God says, I've deposited the Holy Spirit in you, and the three times you stop and pause, you could hear my voice. I could, you could. And the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Let's get one thing clear. The Christian life is a supernatural deal. That means if you are completely capable of doing everything in your life right now, you stop growing spiritually. If I get up tomorrow morning and I can do my life perfectly on my own, I have stopped growing spiritually. That's a fact. I'm going to say once more. New community, covenant church attender, educated, I've got the money, I've got the resources, I'm smart enough, I'm talented enough, I can do my life. If you every day get up and go, I can't do this day without your spirit, you have stopped growing spiritually. 
his empowerment in such a way that his influence and his leading dominate our entire being. That is the normal and natural Christian life. Is this exciting to anybody? Is this exciting to anybody? Oh my gosh. Next three Sundays or four Sundays, we pivot and we recognize that this whole entire thing about emotionality, spiritual, and what we were talking about, of loving, well-being, self-aware, this supernatural thing that God has called us to do, that the key thing, all of this, is that God designed this life in such a way that we are attentive to his promptings and his leading, not just once a day, but throughout the day. And the amazing thing about the Holy Spirit is he is for you. He loves you. He is with you. He knows our limitations even better than we do. Is that good news to anybody? He knows our circumstances better than we do. Is that good news to anybody? And he leads at the perfect pace. He's never in a hurry. The Holy Spirit is And our lives are to be lived from this perspective of. Stop, Peter. Okay. Something you want to do? No, just be with me. Do you hear the voice of the one who says good things about you? Silence and still your heart, my child. Until the inner voices of condemnation and the outer voices, validation, approval, those voices cease. And you could hear the voice of your spirit. Holy Spirit. I can't wait to dig into this with you guys. Let's pray. (sighs) How many of you, how many of us, are living with hurried souls. Completely oblivious to the need for sacred boundaries. Is that you? Because that's me this morning. How many of us have integrated deeply into our daily lives multiple pauses stops throughout the day. Is that you? Because I certainly struggle with it. That's not the life he calls for his sons and daughters. So church, as we wrap up this series and launch into another, I just want to put this out there for the next minute or two as I give you 
the gift of a minute or two of total silence. I'm going to ask CC. We're just going to literally no, no, no noise, no other music, nothing in this room. We're just going to ask that you simply just literally full stop, full pause, and just be attentive to the spirit that lives inside of you. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward as we prepare to give. And church, what we just did there, even just for two, three minutes, creating the time and space just to listen, be attentive, to be still. For those of us that are really struggling with Peter, how do I do this? How do I do it? We're going to talk more about that in the next two, three weeks, so don't worry. We all stand together, church, as we give our tithes and offering. Come on, stand with me. Come on, stand with me. Even though we didn't get to do this during the service, I strongly want to urge those of you in light of what we talked about today, struggling with boundaries, living an absolutely hurried soul life. Please, I implore you, don't just go home. Reach out, seek somebody to say, pray for me, pray with me. I don't want to live this way anymore. Have the courage to look at it in the face and deal with it. So please, I implore you, pastors are up here. Prayer team is behind me. Grab a friend, somebody, and pray. You said you have come that you would give us life and we would experience life to the full. You said that all those who are weary and heavy laden would come to you so that we could find rest. These words, rest for our souls, refreshment, stillness, attentiveness. God, we admit and confess are foreign to many of us this morning. We are anxious, hurried, harried, frenetic, tired, exhausted. not the life you've called us to. We want your life for us. May we be a church, a people, God, living this supernatural, abundant life promised for us in every page of your word. God, we give a tithes and offering to Will you take this and use it for the advancement of your kingdom? We acknowledge that all of this is yours and we're simply giving back to you what you've entrusted to us, Jesus. Glorify your name. Advance your kingdom. Build your church. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.